Whatever you do, remember your health. Whatever you do, Welcome to the Editor's Monthly Podcast of AJPH. Uh, I am Alfredo Morabia and I'm the Editor-in-Chief. We are May 10th, 1917. This issue of AJPH has a special set of editorials about the current state of public health surveillance. They inaugurate a new section of the journal dedicated to emerging methods and concepts related to surveillance. National surveys have become the main source of data supporting public health policy around the globe. The mass of information available today challenges the classic modes of data collection. There is a need for a discussion forum. AJPH offers one. In today's podcast, I interview Lorna Thorpe about these new challenges. Associate Editor Dennis Lau about the new section and about the role of the National Center for Health Statistics in collecting and disseminating surveillance data. I also discuss with Rini Polos about the National Health and Examination Survey, NHANES, and in particular its oversampling component of Asian Americans, which is featured in a special article in this issue of AJPH. Finally, I discuss the importance of this new enhanced data with Katiko Chin from the Asian and Pacific Islander American Health Forum. So let's now call Lorna Thorpe. Lorna. Hi there. Can you hear me okay? Absolutely. It's always great to hear you. <laughs> so Lorna, uh, you are? I am a professor at the NYU School of Medicine in the Department of Population Health, where I direct the Division of Epidemiology. That's great. And tell me, do you like uh, sailing and navigation? <laughs> I'm not a sailor. So why do you call your editorial about surveillance in, in the, uh, the June issue, uh, surveillance as our sextant? Sextant is, is a navigation term, right? That's right. That's right. I thought it was a good analogy. Um, as you know, a sextant is uh, a navigation device for sailors, and it helps sailors know where they're going. I, I believe it works by calculating the angle between the astronomical object and the horizon. Mm -hmm. um, but what, I, what made me think it was a good analogy was that sextants are not necessarily always the most precise of instruments, but it does keep sailors on course. And so the analogy that I was trying to, to employ here was that surveillance data are incredibly important to keep us on track in public health. I see. And that's indeed a, a great analogy. And tell me, I mean, you have a, a very long experience with, uh, with surveillance. I mean, you're very familiar with it. And uh, it's, it's been with us for a, a very long time in general, at least uh, since the, the 60s. But uh, you've been advising us and you've been a great supporter of this new section on methods uh, related to surveillance. Are there some new aspect of surveillance that uh, requires new methods? There's a lot happening in population health surveillance, and that's probably why I'm so enthusiastic about your journal's decision to devote more attention to the field. Uh, in the editorial that I wrote, I pointed out a few areas of growth and innovation, and one of them was that we really need to realize the promise of big healthcare data 
And if you think of methodologies or new sets of skills that are particularly useful in that area, um, machine learning is very important. This is an area where of computer science that focuses on ways to teach computers to learn or, or recognize concepts that are not always explicitly programmed. Um, there are colleagues here at NYU and elsewhere who are employing machine learning to try to identify outbreaks earlier than through our existing approaches by, uh, you know, historically we have used pre-programmed syndromic surveillance uh, to identify syndromes, patterns in, in emergency department data. And what machine learning can do is uh, applying uh, new technology to these data streams like ED chief complaints to recognize newly emerging disease clusters that don't correspond to existing syndromes. So that's just one example. So we could envision requiring public health students in the, in the future to learn computer programming languages like Python. Are we talking about uh, real-time surveillance now? We should be. Uh, that's, that's the, you know, we are trying to um, capture and harness more the existing data that are coming into healthcare systems, uh, payers, uh, to understand in ways that are both as precise as possible, but also as timely as possible to, to take action. And that, that will require new skill sets. It will require testing and really understanding, are these data reliable for us to act upon? Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, many of our, our tools in surveillance are not timely at the moment. But if we have uh, more data and more precise data and actually data on, on really uh, local uh, uh, level, uh, won't we be able to control them better and check also their uh, validity in a better way? Well, certainly that's the dream. The dream is, is and, and I wrote about this in the editorial as well, that one of the, the new growth areas in population health surveillance that I think is really important is small area estimation. And that's essentially taking information that we have at larger geographic spec, uh, uh, jurisdictions, maybe at the county or the state or the national level, and, and using techniques to attempt to understand or estimate what we think is happening at a more granular level, where public health action actually occurs. So at the neighborhood level or at the city level. And uh, there are many different methods used in small area estimation. Um, with time and with increasing use of this approach, I think we will know what is reliable and, and accurate, and that will have a huge impact, I think, on, on uh, targeting our local public health uh, practices towards highest priorities. Yeah, very interesting. And you know, when I, I trained in EPI in the 80s, uh, maybe two-thirds of EPI-1 was about vital statistics and surveillance, and now I think these things has almost, have almost disappeared from uh, the training. So shouldn't we do something about curricula? <laughs> in some ways, you're preaching to the choir here. Um, yes, I absolutely agree with you that we should, um, for a couple of reasons. First, I think it's very important to train the future health workforce to be strong and critical consumers of surveillance data. And the best way to do that is to make sure that they really understand 
uh, how data are collected, its uses and its limitations, and how it varies by data source, and how the what's appropriate in terms of interpretation and what is not. Let me tell you an anecdote. When I finished my PhD in epidemiology, I was I became an EIS officer at the CDC, and one of the first projects they have you do there is to evaluate an existing surveillance system. And it's such an informative exercise because even if you take the most simplest surveillance system and you begin to assess it for all of the things that we need it for, timeliness, completeness, accuracy, acceptability, and a whole host of other characteristics, it, it actually gets quite complex. Um, but it allows you to have a nuanced sense of whether this is a good or a poor system or how to interpret it properly. And these are things I think our students need to understand. Yeah, absolutely. Lorna, thank you very much for your input in the journal and the news section and for your time now. Have a great day. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Remember your health. Ooh, remember your health. Let's call now Associate Editor Dennis Lau. <laughs> Hi, Dennis. Hi, Hi Alfredo. How are you? Fine, and you? So, Dennis. Very good. So you're an associate editor of the journal, of course, um, and uh, you've prepared this uh, new section on, on surveillance uh, for the journal. Can you describe briefly uh, your position currently? Sure. Uh, thanks, Alfredo, for inviting me to this during this podcast. Uh, so my name is Dennis Lau, and I'm the acting director for the Division of Healthcare Statistics here at NCHS, the National Center for Health Statistics. Wow, that, that's that's a great name for a division. What, what does the division do, actually? The division uh, that I'm in charge of uh, is really uh, the mission is to uh, track the health services utilization in the United States, and we also uh, collect information about the characteristics of those healthcare providers that provide these services to the, uh, across the United States. I see healthcare services and providers, and how can you get this information? What, what type of uh, survey do you do for that? Surveys are very unique uh, to, uh, compared to other surveys. Uh, what makes our surveys different is that we collect data directly from the healthcare providers in the healthcare settings. And so we collect administrative and clinical data directly from the providers who work in those settings. And these settings spans across the spectrum from ambulatory and hospital, such as physician offices, community health centers, uh, emergency departments, all the way to long-term care settings, uh, which includes nursing homes, home health, and hospice. So, so let's, let's imagine that I'm a nurse in, in a community health center. I would receive a call from NCHS and you would uh, ask me for some information about my activity. How do you get this information? Because we collect data um, that are representative uh, of the United States uh, providers, what we start off with is where we solve the frame of all the, um, for example, if you're asking about community health centers, we go to the health Resources and Services Administration, HRSA, who provides this frame of all the providers that work in these community health centers. And what we do is we do call them and we ask them, uh, we try to make sure that they qualify and are eligible to participate. And once we determine their eligibility, uh, we go send um, field representatives into these community health centers and nice. we conduct 
interviews with the providers and collect data about the visit that occurs in uh, between the provider and the patient. I see. It's a very labor-intensive activity. And- <laughs> yes. It is very much so. Uh, we partner, actually, for, for community health centers and physician offices, we actually partner with other federal agencies, such as Census, who have a national field force to do this for us. Mm-hmm. It's not that you only collect uh, activity data, you know, electronic data, and, and, and analyze it. You actually go and, and collect your own information, sometimes through interviews, etc., yeah. Yeah, we do, right? So in addition to these kind of uh, going into the settings, we do do mail uh, mail surveys, uh, which have uh, web and telephone components um, so to supplement uh, some of the information we cannot get at the healthcare settings. And uh, when was NCHS established? Do you remember? <laughs> it was established before I got here. Um, it was established back in 1960s, um, but currently it is um, housed in the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC, um, within the Department of Health and Human Services. Uh, the, the center, NCHS, uh, has a very important function, I think, yeah, in terms of uh, collecting health statistics. So the purpose is to collect this information to guide actions and policies to improve okay. the health of the nation. So can you give us some examples of actions and policies that uh, are based on NCHS data? I would say that NCHS was definitely called upon when the Affordable Care Act was implemented where uh, we were called on to monitor and examine how health insurance have changed over time, how whether if health service utilization was also changed as a result of the implementation of the Affordable Care Act so those are certainly important policy making and decision making. I totally agree. Um, so why is there a need for a new section in HGPH about public health surveillance and survey methods, which? Yeah, sure. You know, uh, you know. I think with my, um, you know, expertise in the um, public health surveillance field, um, I, what I've seen is that there's a lot of um, public health surveillance and survey programs out there that really hasn't been well documented. You know, and over time, you know, these surveillance program, uh, surveillance methods have really changed. You know, going from infectious disease to chronic disease surveillance. Um, you know, there's issues regarding security, issues regarding uh, disclosure risk of the individuals who are giving us the data. And, and also, you know, with survey, with survey methods, the, the participant rates has really gone down over the years. So I think um, the, the current public health surveillance and survey programs really have to deal with these challenges and the methods mm-hmm. that are used to really improve that. So I think this Section really does address that because it really documents what's going on with this current mm-hmm. state of our surveillance and how to improve on it. So, what, what are examples of emerging uh, new methods uh, for surveillance? Um, I would say probably one of the biggest thing, and you know, for and it's really uh, something that NCHS has, has uh, really played a part of is really going into electronic data collection, whether if it's uh, handheld devices, uh, collecting biomarkers, uh, all the way to electronic health records, where instead of uh, what I've said earlier, where we send field representatives into the healthcare setting to collect the data, we're actually in the process of collecting 
EHR data directly from their systems. And that really does um, really circumvent, I think, the issue of response rate, uh, also uh, alleviate the burden, and hopefully down the line also decrease the cost of conducting these surveys to make sure that we get the data that we need. So, so are you talking about something like the real-time surveillance that's coming? Yes, um, a lot of that work actually has been occurring in New York City, and I know that in a June issue, we're very excited to publish something um, from um, Sharon Perlman looking into what New York City is doing with, uh, with electronic health record data and public health surveillance. Well, this is fascinating, Dennis, and uh, it's also very exciting to think that this field that has been around for 50 uh, or more years... Yeah. Uh, uh, and it's transformed so much. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Thank you, Dennis. Thank you very much. Thank you, Alfredo. I really appreciate this opportunity. Okay, bye-bye. Okay, after Dennis, let's call Rini Polos and discuss with her the fascinating evolution of the National Health and Examination Survey, and in particular, its current oversampling of Asian Americans. Hi, Alfredo. Yes, this is Rennie. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. Can you hear me well? Absolutely. No, you have okay. an excellent voice, very present, and uh, it's going to be a pleasure to interview you. So, Rini, like uh, Dennis, same as Dennis, you are at NCHS. What's your position in the agency? Yes, so um, my current position is um, as Associate Director for Science, and we have a couple of the ADS is within the center, but I'm specifically within the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey. National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey, NHANES, mm -hmm. right? Yes, NHANES. Uh, yeah, and, and so, so can you tell us a little bit more about NHANES? Because it's been around for a while now, but it's also evolving. Yes, um, it has been around for a while. Actually, HANES in an earlier form existed, started around uh, the 1960s. But HANES, when an examination survey combined with a nutrition uh, component, started around um, the 1970s, early 1970s. Um, and we have been collecting data on the U.S. Um, adult and youth population looking at health and, and nutrition um, uh, since since then, and we're unique from uh, many of the other national surveys because in addition to like the usual personal interviews where we conduct like an in-face interview, we also do a standard physical examination um, at these mobile exam centers that go around the country and actually mm -hmm. collect standardized physical measurements on um, the people that participate in our survey. And so it's very unique because of that. But even more so, um, we also collect biospecimens um, on the individuals that participate in our survey. And that means like we get blood samples as well as urine and some other um, biospecimen collections that we do then process and look at various um, lab analytes in our survey participants. But you know, Rene, I've been a participant. Mm -hmm. I've participated. You have been a participant? <gasps> yes. How exciting. 1987 or 8, something like that. Oh, so you were part of the Haynes 3 survey, which was conducted between 1988 and 1994. That's amazing. I've probably analyzed your data then. 
<laughs> but as yeah, you know, all our meant... participants are, um, there's, uh, you know, every, everybody, there's, it's confidential, so we never know um, okay. who participates in our survey. Everything is de-identified when we're analyzing the data. Of course, but it was a great experience. I have to say it was extremely well organized and you had all those mobile units that were yeah. connected one to the other. And uh, yeah, it was quite remarkable. So uh, now we are talking in the, the, the next things, uh, 2011, 2018. So can we, uh, and, and this has, I think, a, a specific section on Asian Americans. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes. So um, Haynes, um, over um, over its history, has um, has had changes over time, and we um, since 1999 we've been in the survey continuously. That that means that we're collecting data on a nationally representative sample of um, of Americans every year. And um, we designed the survey in somewhat like four-year sample design periods. So it's like um, 2007 to 10, 2011 to 14. And during this time, we can make changes to our sample design um, based on um, like changing priorities in the U.S. population, changing demographics. And so um, starting in 2011, we began oversampling Asian Americans specifically. And so what the paper does is take a look at Haynes from 2011 to 2018, which is that four-year sample design period, and talk more about um, how the sample design has changed since we started oversampling Asian Americans. And we go into some of the general background on Haynes, such as the sample design, the data collection and release, and analytic issues. But we specifically focus or try to focus more on what has changed since the Asian oversample. And, and why is there a need to oversample Asian Americans? Yeah, that's a great question. So as you know, the demographics of the U.S. population changes based on immigration patterns, but Asian Americans specifically are one of the fastest growing subpopulations within the U.S. So if you look, um, in 2015, they made up a little over 6% of the U.S. population. Uh, and when I say Asians and, and the 6%, it represents Asians who report themselves as Asian as a single race, but it also includes Asians that report um, multiple races. So they represented about 19.2 million people um, based on the U.S. Census for 2015. But what's happening is that based on census projections, we're expecting that by 2060, um, the total Asian population will increase to 48.6 million. And that, that represents more than a 150% increase in, in this specific subpopulation. And so when we look at the general U.S. population, it's only about a 30% increase over the same time period. So Asian Americans are definitely a fast-growing subpopulation. And um, given that we're Haynes and we're supposed to be representative of the U.S. population, Haynes wants to um, oversample Asian Americans and get um, a better representation of them within our sample. And but so let in, me in ask addition, you, maybe, oh, go ahead. maybe a, a little bit a technical question at this point, but it seems that uh, Asian American is a large population, so why is there a need to oversample? 
That's a that's a great question. So, like, when we talk about oversampling, so let me step back one um, minute. So, for Haynes, because of the complexity of the survey, where we're doing uh, like a home interview with the the participant, as well as getting them to these mobile exam units and then collecting biospecimens on them, we we only sample up uh, about five thousand people per year. So it's a small sample size, gen like relative to some other surveys. Um, and so annual uh, for the two-year survey period, it's about 10,000 people. But when we oversample, what we're simply doing is we're taking more people um, within our sample than they actually represent within the U.S. population. So if you remember, I, I mentioned that the um, Asians represent about 6% of the U.S. population. But in Haines, they represent about 13% of our annual sample. So we're taking more Asian Americans into our sample than you would expect to find them in the U.S. population. And what that does is that it allows us um, greater statistical reliability and precision in terms of the estimates that we're going to be computing on this subgroup. Um, um, and then, you know, we use fancy statistical weighting procedures and other, uh, other things to ultimately say that the estimate that we compute based on the number that we have in the sample will actually represent will provide us the national estimate for this subgroup. So 6% of the, the 5,000, it is small. And what we want is the larger the sample size, the more statistically reliable the estimate can be. So, so if I understand well, what you mm -hmm. want is to have 5,000 a year, 10,000 in uh, over two years, and to have this number in the total NHANE sample, it represents a larger fraction of the sample yes. than it is of the of the U.S. population. That's what you call oversampling. But it's actually guaranteeing that you have a sufficient number of Asian Americans in the sample in order to do analysis. Yeah, I understand that. Yes, yes, exactly. Oh, I, I want to mention that, you know, it's not only Asian Americans we sample. In this report, you know, I'm focusing on Asian, Asian Americans, but we've been oversampling non-Hispanic blacks and Hispanics um, and Mexican-American persons since we became continuous in 1999. Um, and then starting in 2007, we started oversampling Hispanics as a single group as well. So wh what are the results of NHANES used for? What do you expect those results in particular about the Asian American community uh, be used for? So uh, HANES um, data have been used, again, like as you know, we've been in We've been in existence for a long time, so Haines results has been used to um, uh, improve the health of the U.S. population in many ways. I mean, I, I think one of the ones that the two that I always give as an example is fortification of cereals. Um, it was based on some of um, the results from Haines that led to, uh, in terms of low levels of certain minerals and vitamins in the U.S. population, specifically among children, that led to fortification of cereals to, to help increase um, the nutritional mm. um, intake of specific minerals and um, nutrients within the U.S. population. But nice then taking lead, like our assessment of... Um, um, blood lead content in the U.S. population also led to uh, taking lead out of um, gasoline, you know. So we've had like major, right. our results have been, had major public health implications um, over the course of the history of Haines. Those examples are really fantastic. And so 
what do you think that uh, the paper that you've, uh, you're publishing in this issue of AJPH uh, will be uh, used for uh, by uh, the people who will read it? I really feel that AJPH provides a different venue. And it's more specifically, um, it can reach a broader audience. We get our researchers excited about the Haynes data, and then more specifically, get them excited uh, about um, the Asian American estimates that they can now compute with the 11 to 14 data. And also important to know is that we're continuing to oversample Asian Americans. Um, so it's not only we're not stopping in 2014, we're um, continuing um, in 15, 16, 17, 18, and probably beyond because the Asian American um, population, as I mentioned, is just going to continue to increase. So I think AJPH and specifically this report in AJPH is going to highlight um, um, Haynes and what it can do and the estimates it can provide on um, this subpopulation. Rindy, you've summarized so nicely uh, the mission and, and the goals of this section. Uh, I really have to congratulate you and to thank oh. you because this is exactly uh, what uh, what the purpose is of this, this section. And uh, thank you, Rini. Thank you for your time and for this contribution to the journal. And um, see you soon. Okay, thank you very much, Alfredo. Thank you again for the opportunity to do this. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Remember your health. The opening editorial of this special section of the journal dedicated to surveillance methods is signed by... Kathy Ko Chin, and she's the leader of uh, an organization which represents Asian and Pacific Islander Americans. I wanted to ask her, how important is it for this community when a survey like N. Haynes is finally able to provide specific data about Asian Americans, but also to describe differences within this community? Hello. Hello, Kathy. Hi, Alfredo. I'm so glad this is working. Kathy, tell me, you, you're president and chief executive officer of, of this forum. Can, can you mm-hmm. tell me more about it? Sure, yes. The Asian and Pacific Island American Health Forum is the nation's uh, clear, strong consumer voice uh, for the health and well-being of Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander communities. And for 30 years, we've connected our communities to the White House, to Capitol Hill, and to the Supreme Court, bringing the issues, needs, and assets of our communities to the highest um, levels of government government in our country. And so tell me, what size of population are we talking uh, for this community? Yes. So we're talking about um, about 20 million people, um, but always uh, expanding. So there are about um, 19 million Asian Americans and uh, about a million Native Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders all across the United States. But when we're saying Asian Americans and Native Hawaiians and Pacific Islander, I mean, there's a lot of diversity, as I understand, in this community, right? 
Absolutely. We uh, count about 50 different uh, nationalities and hundreds of different languages and dialects uh, within those countries, within, so you, within yeah, our population. How, how do you deal with all those languages? It's hard. Um, language access is actually one of the key things that the health form has been working on for all 30 years of our history. Um, and we see language access as not just a... Uh, uh, access issue, but really a quality of care issue. Because if you can't communicate with your physician, it really is, in, in, I've heard some people say, it's um, no different than veterinary care. Let me understand. Those are languages written and spoken or, or dialects? Yes, uh, languages written and spoken, um, uh, uh, at least a hundred different languages that have different written and spoken forms. Wow, that's very impressive. And this community is, is expanding, I think, uh, quite rapidly. How, how many uh, people can we expect in uh, the United States in 2042, 25 yes. years from now? So I have actually data for projections for 2045, um, and the projections enough. is um, 32 million Asian Americans, which is an 82% increase, and 1.2 million Native Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders, which is a 44% increase. And what we've seen is that Asian Americans, Native Hawaiians, and Pacific Islanders are the fastest growing uh, community of color in the country. So as an example, um, from 2000 to 2010, the AAPI population in uh, Atlanta, Georgia, grew 400%. Um, and uh, if you go to Atlanta now, um, I think it's in Gwinnett County, uh, there's a, a, a road, Buford Highway, which for five miles, all the signs are first, the first two miles are in Korean, the second set of two miles are in Vietnamese, and the last miles, all the signs are in Chinese. Fantastic, fantastic. And how do we explain this growth? Um, a lot of it is um, uh, uh, secondary migration. So you've, we've seen a lot of communities who come to this country first and then uh, will uh, have a secondary migration to where their families are, where their job opportunities, where the climate might be a little bit more familiar. Um, we also have seen a decrease in uh, um, uh, immigration from Mexico and Latin America and an increase in uh, immigration from Asia and the Pacific. Um, and, uh, and then in other populations, there's actually been a decrease in the population. So the proportions have really shifted in this country. I understand. And let, let, let's go now to this, uh, the June issue of, of AJPH. As you know, we, we are publishing the, the method used by NCHS to oversample uh, the Asian Americans in uh, the United States. Uh, I think you, you're very well familiar with this uh, uh, survey. So what do you expect the new NHANES data can bring to uh, these communities? Yes, we've actually already seen it. So through the advocacy of the Asian and Pacific Island American Health Forum, uh, working with NHANES, but we've actually worked with the National Center for Health Statistics for all 30 of our years. Um, we've really had a partnership with NCHS for, uh, you know, ever since our inception. Um, so we were advocating with NHANES, the National Health and Nutrition uh, Examination Study, to really look at uh, Asian American populations. And so since 20 
2011, they've been doing an oversample of where when they go across the country to the 13 to 16 different locations, they've really tried to focus on doing an oversample for Asian American populations. And in that, we've already seen results of um, data analysis that NHANES has been able to do that really for Asian Americans, especially when the data is disaggregated and analyzed for specific ethnicities, that there are differences between Asian American populations and the general population. And then in particular, um, in addition to the NHANES study, uh, the National Health Interview Survey, which is the largest health survey in the country, administered again by the National Center for Health Statistics, they did a special study for Native Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders, and they pooled data across a number of years and then were able to disaggregate that by specific Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander communities and really found significant differences between uh, Native Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders uh, as compared to even Asian Americans and then compared to the general population. But Kathy, give me some examples of some of those differences that you wouldn't have expected if uh, they hadn't been observed in the surveys. Right. So um, I, I actually don't have the data right in front of me. I'm sorry. But um, uh, for example, Native Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders, when they were surveyed about uh, their own self-assessment of their health as being uh, good, uh, excellent, good, fair, or poor, there was a much higher rate of only fair or poor as self-reported by Native Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders. I think it was like twice the rate of uh, that of Asian Americans, and then it was significantly higher than the general population. So we know, and we've always advocated for the importance of having data that's not only collected by specific ethnicities, but also analyzed that way and reported out that way. It's such a powerful thing. And I want to bring another issue now uh, because, uh, as you know, uh, there's this new uh, American Health Care Act that uh, has been voted uh, in the House. I mean, it still needs to be uh, uh, confirmed in the Senate. But uh, uh, you've been, your forum has been working very hard, I think, in terms of uh, uh, getting uh, larger coverage of insurance uh, yes. among the, your community. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, and so let me actually tie it back to the importance of data and surveillance, but data in particular. So when before the Affordable Care Act became law, um, when we looked at the rates of insurance or rates of uninsurance across different racial and ethnic populations, um, if you took all the data of Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders and aggregate them or collapse them all into one uh, data point. Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders looked like we had the highest rates of insurance or the lowest rates of uninsurance. But when the health forum, the Asian Pacific Island American Health Forum, when our staff then dug into that data and disaggregated it by specific ethnicities, what we found was that Korean Americans had among the highest rates of uninsurance in the country at 23%, higher than any other race or ethnicity population, as well as Bangladeshis and Pakistanis at 18 
18% and 17% respectively of uninsurance. And Southeast Asians had also double-digit uninsurance. So when we were able to work together with 70 other partners from across the country in 23 states, we were able to then target the outreach in language to those populations. And so now, after four rounds of uh, um, open enrollment uh, assistance, uh, a million people, a million Asian wow. Americans, Native Hawaiians, and Pacific Islanders have been enrolled in those 23 states, um, and the enrollment assistance was done in 56 languages. And we, and now, Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders have the lowest rates of uninsurance and had the single largest drop. I think the drop was by 56% from the previous uh, rates before the ACA to now after four rounds of open enrollment. And we know that it was only, it was uh, not only the important work of our partners all across the country who worked 12 hours a day to get people enrolled, but we also know it was because we could disaggregate the data, understand where the needs were, and then apply uh, the uh, the efforts in those communities in their languages. Well, this is very impressive. I mean, one million people, that's a very large fraction of all the people who actually gain uh, insurance. And so uh, are you worried now, I mean, with this uh, new uh, uh, law, I mean, if it passes, what is are going to be the implication that we can expect in the uh, uh, Asian American community? Yeah, so if the law passes the Senate, um, 24 million people could lose their coverage. And within those 24 million, 2 million are Asian American, Native Hawaiian, Pacific Islander, of which about half our network was able to assist to enroll. At the same time, though, there is another open enrollment period that uh, is, going, is planning to happen this fall. Uh, Secretary Price has already cut the period of time to only one month. But my fear is that people will think that because uh, the ACA was repealed, which it's not being completely repealed, it's being replaced, but my fear is that people will think that because they've heard repeal, 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 they won't understand that there really is another opportunity at the end of this year, an open enrollment period number five, where folks can enroll and continue to get health insurance. So it is really critical that we continue to inform everyone that, that at least for now, and even if the Senate adopts the same bill as the House, there still will be an open enrollment period at the end of the year, and making sure that people um, get access to that by language, by immigration status, um, that uh, they can still enroll, that will also be really important. Hey, good point. I mean, the, the, there is a communication challenge there that... Uh, uh, should be addressed. Kathy, thank you so much. This was extremely interesting. Thank you for your time. And bye-bye. Thank, uh, thank you so much. Bye. This last interview concludes this uh, podcast. To stay in touch with uh, AJPH, visit our brand new website at ajph.org. Follow us on Twitter the journal, and myself. And I can't leave you without telling you that the reggae groove that uh, accompanied this podcast was uh, composed by Francis Jacob. And it featured Kofo the Wonder Man, a Nigerian singer who lives in New York City. Next month, the podcast will be about risk assessment. See you then.